Good morning. Let's pray for a moment and then we'll dig in. Father, thank you so much that you have plans for us, that you have called us into partnership with you. In the words of that song, help us to grasp the heights of those plans, Lord. Help us to see that which you would show us, for our hearts to be open to hear from you now. In your precious name, amen. Fantastic. So we are working through this series of New Life Base Camp. We're thinking about God as a God who tabernacles, who tents himself with us, who comes and dwells among us, and who is a God on the move. And therefore, as well, we should be a church on the move. So this is our image, our four tent pegs and a pair of boots. We are to rest, we are to breathe, we are to pray, we are to prepare at base camp, and then we are to go. We're looking at preparation today. Preparation is something I think that we're all familiar with. We prepare things all the time. We prepare meals. We prepare for meetings. We prepare for our children. We prepare for retirement. If you're watching depressing daytime TV, you're possibly preparing for a funeral in the adverts. That's a lovely advert that comes up, isn't it? We prepare for promotion. We prepare for exams. We prepare for ministry. We prepare for a race. What does preparation look like for the Christian life? What does preparation look like for this adventure with God? What does it look like for us as followers of Jesus and as a church? To help us with that, I'm going to introduce you to two climbers this morning. Our first climber, Bill. Bill has been dreaming of his trip to Everest for years. Bill's got his boots sorted. He's got an incredibly nice Gore-Tex shell. He's got his ski goggles ready for preventing slow blindness. <laughs> He's got the best kit that money can buy. He's a meticulous researcher. Bill has researched every single route up Everest. He knows the paths inside out and back to front. He knows all the different routes and the risk factors. He's done his homework. Bill is ready. And he heads off to Everest Base Camp. And he hunkers down in his tent night one and day one comes round and he he shoulders his pack, all his kits ready. And he looks out and he sees it's snowing. And he says, looks uh, tough out there. I'll go tomorrow. Back into the tent. Next day, day two comes round. Gets a bit further this time. He sets on out with his pack, with his kit. He's ready to go. And then the gradient gets pretty steep and he thinks, I think there's a better route. I'm going to go back to camp tonight, I'm going to look at the maps, and I'm going to try and find a, a better route. Day three comes round, it's too foggy. Day four, it's too sunny. Day five comes round, and eventually, Bill stops looking out of his tent. And each morning, he gets up and he repacks his pack, and he prepares his boots, and he polishes his ski goggles, and he wanders around the camp, chatting to his fellow campers, and he makes a hot chocolate, and he settles down looking up at the summit, and he says to himself that one day he's going to set off when things are just right, when he's prepared to go. We're going to meet another climber. This is Ben. Ben's an enthusiastic guy. Ben's a passionate guy. 
Ben is ready for adventure. And Ben is watching telly one night, and he, a documentary about Everest comes on, and he thinks, whoa, I want a slice of that action. And he logs online and finds out how much does it cost to fly out there, and then he goes, goes onto his bank account. Yeah, I've got, I've got about that. So he maxes out his credit card, and within a few days, he's on a plane. Ben is off to climb Everest. Ben is ready to go. He is fired up. And he gets up on day one, and he gets out his t-shirt, and his shorts, and his flip-flops, and he packs his bag, and he goes! And within a few minutes, he's back at camp, and he's frozen, and he's wet, and he's dejected, and he's miserable. But, but Ben's not to be defeated. Ben is a passionate guy. He is on fire. He is ready to climb this mountain. And so day two comes around and he sets off in spite of the cold. And he gets terribly, terribly lost because he's not looked at a map. And he winds up back at base camp. Same story again and again. Eventually Ben sits slumped in his tent, defeated, knowing that he'll never find his way. He just isn't prepared enough. Friends, the tragedy is that the church is full of bills and bends. Some of us are so focused on our preparation that we miss the adventure altogether. Some of us are so focused on settling into making sure everything is right. We spend our time with our books and our Bibles and our sermons and our podcasts and our prayer meetings and our life groups and our cosy hot chocolate Christianity that we never strike out for the summit and we never set out on the adventure. Others of us are fired up. We are desperate to get going and do things for Jesus. We are desperate to see kingdom work happening, but perhaps we've never put in the work. We've not taken time to prepare. And we end up like Ben, defeated and, and miserable. And our job this morning, our goal, is to try and change this, to learn how we ready ourselves for this adventure with God so that we can head out onto the mountain fully prepared for what is in store. If you've got a Bible, turn with me to Ephesians 4, New Testament, so just towards the end. We're going to be reading that in a moment. Because before we work out what preparation looks like, we need to unpick something. We need to actually work out what the destination is. What is the summit of our mountain? What are we preparing for? Let me tell you a few things that it's not. It's not going to heaven when you die. That is not the goal of our Christian lives. That is not what we're aiming for. Oh, one day, if I'm a good Christian and I do all the right things, then I'll go to heaven, whoopity doo dah. That is not the goal of Christian living. Nor is it converting lots of people. The goal of our life is not to go out and make everybody believe the same things that I do. It's really important. We want to introduce people to Jesus, absolutely, and we'll see why in a few minutes. But that isn't the highest goal. Nor is it becoming a theologian, learning lots about Jesus, knowing the scriptures from cover to cover, having a great big head full of knowledge. I understand every commentary in Greek and Hebrew and all the rest of it, and that's the goal of my Christian life. No, that isn't the summit either. Let's read this chapter from Ephesians 4. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. 
Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we reach all unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful schemes. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. It's a rich passage. We're going to focus from verse 11 onwards. From verse 11, when Paul describes the gifts that God has given to prepare his church, we sometimes talk about this fivefold ministry apostle, prophet, evangelist, teacher, pastor. And it says that, that God's giving this to prepare us. So, what are we preparing for? Well, it says in verse 12, works of service. That's our destination, Ron. That's what you're talking about. Works of service. That must be the summit of the mountain. The purpose of preparation is that we might serve other people. That's part of it, but that's not the whole story. Because read on to verse 13. To prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ might be built up until we reach all unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Just let that sink in for a moment. That is our ultimate destination. That is what we are aiming for. That is the adventure that we are going on with God. It is to be brought to a place where we are united, where we are mature, and where we attain to the whole measure of fullness in Christ. This idea of fullness in Christ is a strong theme right the way through Ephesians. In Ephesians 1.23, Paul writes that the church is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. In chapter 3, verse 17, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have the power, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. This is our destination, and this is our calling. This is what we are preparing for. We are preparing to be a people who are so connected, who are so united, who are so bound to one another in love, that we reflect fully the love 
and the unity of the Trinity. The love that gave itself on Calvary. The love of a father towards the world that gave his son. The love of the spirit that points to Christ. The very essence of God himself. That is our adventure. That is the excitement. That is the journey that we are going on. That is huge. That is exciting. That is so much better than reading our Bibles lots, attending a prayer meeting, converting people, going to heaven when you die. These are things that are exciting, that are part of the puzzle. But the adventure is that we attain to the fullness of Christ. Verse 13, when it says become mature, the word is teleos. This is sometimes translated as be perfect. Matthew 5, be perfect therefore as I am perfect. That's the same word here. Until we reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become perfect, attaining to the whole measure of fullness in Christ. The challenge when we're thinking about this is that maturity, I think, is very often thought of in very individual terms. We talk about somebody being a very mature man of God. Oh, she's got such a mature faith. She knows God so well. And that's great. And that kind of maturity is really important. But when you unpick it, the goal here that is being talked about is corporate maturity. It is that we mature, that the body of Christ might become mature. Not so that you, or you, or you, or you become mature, but that we, that the body might be perfected. Maturity in this sense is not an isolated activity. And we cannot demonstrate the sort of maturity that we are being called to through this preparation if we are not in community with one another, if we are not in fellowship with one another. God is three in one. This perfection, this character of God, is a relational perfection. And our maturity, our perfection, is a relational maturity. John Stott says this, The church is represented as a single organism, the body of Christ, And it is to grow up into adult stature. Indeed, Paul has referred to it as the new humanity which God is creating, or as the one new man, chapter 2, verse 15. To the oneness and the newness of this man, he now adds matureness. That one new man is to attain to mature manhood, which will be nothing less than the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, the fullness which Christ himself possesses and bestows. And that is so important because this isn't some kind of colourless uniformity. This is not us all being the same. This is a loving unity that embraces and welcomes our differences. This is a connectedness where we embrace those different gifts, apostle, preacher, pastor, teacher, evangelist, and so many others. This is a unity that embraces our different genders, our different personalities, our different views. It is unity in diversity. The three parts of the Trinity are not the same. They are one God, but they are three persons. This variety is from him. Stock goes on to say, we are not to imagine that every Christian is an exact replica of every other, as if we'd been all mass-produced in some celestial factory. On the contrary, the unity of the church, far from being boringly monotonous, is exciting in its diversity. We're made in the image of God. 
That means that all that is good about our variety, about our difference, finds its origin, finds its genesis in his heart. You know, even if we deal with complicated stuff about pre-fall and post-fall and and variety and that kind of stuff, even if we go pre-fall, Adam and Eve were different. Both made in the image of God and both very different. Man and woman are different. We don't need a biology lesson for that. Our characters, our differences, reflect the variety and the beauty of the heart of God. So just imagine what this would look like. Imagine if we achieved that goal as church, as this church, this group of people here for a moment. Imagine the impact that we would have on this town and on this area if we attained this goal of reaching all unity in the faith, that we have full knowledge of the Son of God, that we become perfect, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. If we perfectly reflected the fullness of Christ, imagine the impact that this church would have. Let's think bigger. If the church globally, if every Christian, every member of this extended family, this extended body across the globe, whether over in America or in deepest, darkest Africa or in North Korea or in the UK or in Europe, wherever we are, if we could achieve this goal as one body, the church would be utterly irresistible. To follow Jesus would be utterly irresistible. The draw, the impact would be incredible. If we were perfected and mature in this unity and love, truth in love interwoven, verse 15, speaking the truth in love, the world is crying out for those things, crying out for truth, for something to hold on to, and crying out for that to be presented with love and grace and acceptance. If truth and love were interwoven in our church through our speech, our action, our gentleness, our humility, our love for one another, it would be utterly irresistible. So we come back then to this idea of preparation. We've got an idea of the destination. Let's think about the journey. The summit is this this beautiful fullness of Christ, this likeness to Jesus. So what does that mean for us for our preparation? Well, the first thing to say is that preparation is going to have two distinct aspects. It's going to have collective aspects and individual aspects. Since our ultimate destination is a collective one that we as one body might attain to this perfection, our training and our preparation can't be entirely individual. However, the maturing of this church as a whole is also going to depend upon the maturity of us as the individuals that make it up, the maturing of its individual members. This next moment is a rugby team analogy. You've got to bear in mind that I wrote this after our stonking victory over the All Blacks a week ago. Yeah. To achieve victory for a rugby team, the ultimate goal is a corporate one. The ultimate goal is that as a team, they hold aloft the trophy. To achieve that, the players need to work as a cohesive unit. They need to train together. They need to practice together. They need to work on their teamwork, their set pieces, their line-out, the scrummaging. Oh, the scrummaging. (sighs) 
They need to work on their teamwork, their communication. They need to work together. But if the individual components aren't practiced individually, if the props don't spend the time in the gym doing what props do in a gym, if Farrell doesn't practice his kicking, if the individual skills aren't honed, then they are not able to fulfill their own potential as part of that corporate unit. Do you see the analogy? Do you see what we're seeing here? I don't know whether anyone saw the, the Welsh team warming up before their semi-final. Zoe spotted it, and then we saw Joe Marlow and Dan Cole doing the same thing yesterday. The Welsh team, in their warm-ups, they run out onto the pitch, and they started literally colliding shoulder, shoulder into chest, shoulder into chest, shoulder into chest, colliding with one another, just in the warm-up, with each other. Why are they doing that? They're strengthening each other. Absolutely. They are preparing themselves for the impact that's going to be a heck of a lot harder when one of the springboks pounds into them. It's going to be a lot harder than their mate giving them a shoulder. Friends, the church is our training ground. The church is our warm-up. This is a place where sometimes we are going to bump into each other. We're going to collide with each other, and that is going to hurt at times. And I'm not saying that church should be a place where we just are obnoxious and rude and horrible to each other because, well, you know, it's a good training ground for when you head out into the world. <laughs> Let's not overextend the analogy. But it is where we learn to love our brothers and sisters here. That's preparing for loving our enemies when we head out, isn't it? And if we can't bump up against each other in this space and make that work, Paul talks about it here, doesn't he? Bearing with one another in love. He wouldn't need to say that if it was going to be a party, if it was going to be easy, if we were all going to just be walking along like our, all in unison in quick step time, you know, all just going along together. That's not what church is going to be. We are going to need to be patient with one another, to bear with one another, to be humble. This complexity of preparation is embedded in the word itself. In Greek, this word katartizo is translated variously as prepare, equip, Mend, train, restore, supply, or unite. Many of those activities have both individual and collective implications. And William Barclay goes on to say this. In classical Greek, the word has a wide variety of meaning. Firstly, it means to put into order or to restore. Hence, it is used of pacifying a city which is torn by faction or of setting a limb that has been dislocated, or of developing a certain part of the body by exercise, or restoring a person to his rightful mind, or of reconciling friends who've become estranged. See, collective and individual things going on here. It's also used of equipping or fully furnishing someone or something for a given purpose. It's used of fitting out a ship, and it's used of an army, fully armed and equipped and drawn up in battle array. And it's interesting, when you unpick that, all of these meanings, at the root of this word, this is about something that is not quite what it should be, getting back to what its true and vital form is. An unprepared army is no use whatsoever. A ship that is not rigged is just a pile of wood. It's just floating. It's not going anywhere. A broken limb is out of joint with itself. Friends who are estranged from one another should not be so. Preparation 
is about something that is not as it should be being restored to its true and vital form. God's image in us is marred and broken by sin, by disunity, by failure. And we are being prepared, we are preparing to one day reclaim that image, to attain to the whole measure of fullness in Christ. One day we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. 1 John 3, 2. All love, all unity, all the fullness of God. And we see this collective and individual aspect in this Ephesians passage. God has given us, collectively, these gifts. Apostles, evangelists, prophets, pastors, teachers. Explicitly to prepare God's people. And part of our preparation, therefore, is to be found both in receiving ministry and in exercising it ourselves. In fact, those works of service, do you remember those works of service in verse 12, to prepare God's people for works of service? The word there, diakonos, it's ministry. So you can translate this as, we are being ministered to, to be a minister. There was a notice sheet from a church in America, and it had on the front line, rector, the Reverend Everett Fulham, it's a good name, associate rector, his name, assistant to the rector, his name, Next came the line, ministers, the entire congregation. For our church notice sheet, senior pastor, Glenn Cormack, missions pastor, Steve Cowie, children's worker, Jen, ministers, the entire congregation, each and every one of us. Part of our preparation is both in receiving ministry and in exercising it. And that means that being in church Yes, on a Sunday, but in our life groups and in all the other manifestations of church, being exposed to those with different gifts and receiving from one another, this is essential to our preparation. We study together, we learn from teaching, from scripture, from discussion, from the experience of our sung worship, from praying together, from entering into the hurts and hearts of each other. And it is as we do that that we prepare If we are to attain to this fullness of knowledge of Christ, we need one another. We need to rub shoulders with and occasionally collide with those of different gifts, those of different passions to our own. We need to work through our different notions of what a sermon should look like or what a band should sound like or what prophecy or prayer or healing or leadership or pastoral care or any of these other things should look like. And if you are coming to church as some kind of echo chamber for your own views, and you just want to hear back, well, I've got my theology sorted out, thank you very much, and I know exactly what I'm doing with Jesus, and and I've got all this sorted, and I've been walking with God for years, and all I want is just an echo chamber of what I already know coming back at me, friends, then if that's your position, then you are at risk of missing the adventure. You are at risk of missing the point of preparation. And you are at risk of being an infant tossed back and forth and blown by every wind of teaching. There is more to this preparation. There is our collective life together as part of the body, receiving ministry from one another, rubbing up against one another, working these things through together. But there is individual work to be done too. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew 4, verse 18. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. 
Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. The adventure that we are on with God, being transformed into his likeness and attaining this fullness, relies on us actually following him. There was a choice, a response to this call that was made by Peter, Andrew, James and John. There was a response and a choice that they had to make. And that choice wasn't just to joining a movement to getting together and studying some new teachings, to reading Torah together. It wasn't just that. The choice they made was to actually follow Jesus. Oswald Chambers says that this call of God, the call of God is like the call of the sea. No one hears it but the one who has the nature of the sea in him. It cannot be stated definitely what the call of God is too, because his call is to be in comradeship with himself for his own purposes. And the test is to believe that God knows what he's after. This call is to be in comradeship with himself for his own purposes. John Eldridge speaks of this adventure with God. And he says, The only way to live this adventure, with all its danger and unpredictability and immensely high stakes, is an ongoing, intimate relationship with God. The control that we so desperately crave is an illusion. Far better to give it up in exchange for God's offer of companionship, setting aside our stale formulas so that we might enter into an informal friendship. Isn't that amazing? We set aside stale formulas to enter into an informal friendship, a companionship with God. And if you notice in this passage, our little word katartizo is embedded there, preparing their nets. Because Jesus works with what we've got and who we are. Yes, sometimes we are going to be called out of our comfort zone. Yes, there are examples of that through Christian history, church history, through, through biblical history. But very often, more often than not, God works with the gifts, the talents, the experiences, the resources that we already have. Aaron was good at speaking. Moses needs somebody who's good at speaking. My brother's good at speaking. Yeah, that's fine. Use Aaron. Aaron's going to speak. Paul was a deep-thinking theologian, an expert in Torah. Who became the great theologian of the early church? It was Paul. Peter was a fisherman. Who became the one who gathered people in? I love this one. David. You know, we often think of David going out to face Goliath and he's this little boy with his little slingshot and his little stone as a big Goliath because that's what we've seen in the cartoons and all the rest of it. Do you know what happens before David ever fights Goliath? When they're looking for someone to play the liar and one of Saul's attendants says, I know a man who plays the liar beautifully. He is a brave man and a warrior. That's David. Before he's ever flung a stone, he is a brave man and a warrior. God works with who we are and what we've got. Jesus takes these fishermen, their daily habits, their experiences, their gifts, and in his grace, he transforms them to his purposes. I was talking to Greg about this passage a few months ago, and Greg said something which has never left me. You know the, uh, 
the rich man who comes to Jesus in Matthew 19, 21. When the rich man comes and he says, I want to follow you, and, and Jesus says, that's great. If you want to be perfect, that's our word again, teleos, mature, same word. If you want to be mature, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And Greg said, the rich man got exactly the same offer as Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Exactly the same offer. Come, follow me. They gave their gifts to Jesus. And through him, they have influenced the eternal destiny of millions and millions of people. They wrote gospels, planted churches, shaped theology, and became four of the most influential people ever to have walked on this earth. The rich man remains nameless to this day. Why? Because he had a lot of stuff that he quite liked that he wouldn't let go of. Isn't that tragic and exciting? What gifts have you got that Jesus wants to take hold of and transform? What habits and dispositions and abilities and background and resources have you got that you're keeping? Because these things, when they are abandoned and given to God to be worked on and to be transformed and to develop, these are the things that he will use to unlock his kingdom purposes. We may start by preparing a dirty fishing net and we find ourselves preparing to introduce thousands to the beautiful person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Preparation takes choice and a response to this call. But it also does take work. And I think a, a challenge is that for a number of years church has inclined towards, I was listening to a sermon on this the other day, it's inclined towards a decision-based rather than a discipleship-based model of faith. That we can be so eager to see people make a choice to come to Jesus. Come to me, yes, and they come. And our altar calls or our conferences, or our prayer times, or our one-to-ones, and they come to Jesus, and we are really keen to see that, but then we neglect to tell them that we are to follow him, and to follow him is to pick up a cross at times. It's to count the cost at times. There's a, a pastor of a church in Canada, and if somebody says, I want to become a Christian, can you pray with me? He says, yeah, I'd love to talk to you about that. Let's sit and talk together, we'll pray, and, uh, and then come back in a week or so. And count the cost in the meantime. And then we'll, we'll pick it up. That's brave, isn't it? Not, oh, yay, yippee, chalk up another convert. No. Go and count the cost, because this is real. That adventure is amazing, but climbing Everest isn't easy. In Greek culture, to prepare to train as an athlete, to be allowed to train as an athlete, was counted an incredible honour and a privilege. So just think about that. To have to go out in the Grecian sun and run and sprint and, you know, no Nike Air Max trainers those days. Imagine what they had to put their bodies through to be an athlete. But it was counted as an incredible privilege. A few Sundays ago in Ghana Sunday, I don't know whether you saw those kids and their faces when they talked about education and the ability that they had to go to school. The excitement, the enthusiasm, they knew that education for them was the highest privilege. Speaking as a head teacher, if I could get one-tenth of that kind of enthusiasm 
and passion from our children. They take it for granted. School is, yeah, we all go to school and actually I'd rather be, you know, kicking a ball around or whatever. Those Ghanaian kids prized it. Think about the church in North Korea. Those people would give their eye teeth to have the kind of opportunities to prepare to follow Jesus that we have. They would be desperate to have just, just one Bible, never mind the 10 or 12 translations that are probably sitting on our bookshelves. They would be desperate to get together, to meet, to study, to learn, to listen to podcasts or, or sermons, to read the scriptures. How much are we valuing those things? Are we like the Ghanaian children who understand that to have the opportunities that we have to meet like this, to prepare ourselves, is an incredible privilege? An honour? Or are we just a little bit blasé? Are Sundays just too full of other stuff to make it to church? Wednesday evening's TV is just too exciting to make it to life group. The latest spy novel is just so gripping that I don't read my scripture today. Preparation takes patience, takes humility, takes choice, it takes surrender. It takes commitment and it takes dedication. But friends, the summit, the summit is so worth it. It is so worth it. Remember our two climbers, Bill and Ben? Just imagine for a moment if their story had been different. Imagine if they had met each other at base camp. If Bill had shared his kit and his expertise and his research with Ben. And if Ben had got alongside Bill and given Bill some of that fire and spark and drive that he needed. Imagine if they'd taken the time together to work and to plan and to sharpen each other and to study the roots. Imagine the momentum with which they would have set out. And as you picture that, as you picture them striking out from base camp together, just imagine that someone else drew alongside them a guide. Someone who knew the mountain from top to bottom. Someone who had shaped every crack and every path. Who offered to go along with them and said, follow me. Nothing would stop them from reaching the summit. So what's stopping us? Let's pray. Lord, we are humbled to be given this offer of an adventure with you. And it is daunting, Lord, and it is intense. And we don't take it lightly. But to attain to the measure of fullness in Christ, to reflect you, to be transformed to your likeness, Jesus. Help us to glimpse in some small part what that means for us. To glimpse the summit. To lean into that. To prepare ourselves. Lord, let us... Do so in the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. In your precious name, amen.